we are supported by Mammoth Fuel. Mammoth Fuel Bars were created with people like you in mind using only natural ingredients and zero artificial junk. We took no shortcuts in developing this highly functional and portable fuel bar. What are the benefits you may ask? Portable on-the-go fuel, post-workout recovery, boost cognitive function, aids in weight loss, anti-inflammatory, and low sugar. With 13 grams of protein and only 4 net carbs, Mammoth Fuel is the perfect meal, snack, and energy bar where you'd like to go. Try Mammoth Fuel at mammothfuel.com. What's in that mug? <laughs> Don't ask so me. This is, this, this is some Jim Beam with some keto coffee creamer and some awesome Texas pecan brew. So I have a, uh, let's see, nice. I have a Finster mug, but I had a, a client that we just did some consulting stuff for last week that he's getting a 14 <laughs> ROAS right now on his ads and his marketing like for every dollar he's putting in he's getting 14 dollars back out and he's that's like hey crazy. dude i'm sending you a gift because like i made so much chicken money this week <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> yeah. that's so, so cool it's good but yeah cool awesome hey guys welcome to the new normal where we are talking about current events philosophy homesteading everything that you want to learn about uh in this new normal my name is sal and with me as always we have quentin say hi quentin how's it going guys we have a special guest with us today, Mr. Walden Fenster. Uh, we are so happy to have him. I'm going to just give you a couple talking points about Mr. Uh, Mr. Walden here. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, he's a serial business builder. Uh, he's a small business expert and corporate consultant and has an expertise in fa facilitating brand growth for businesses and startups. Mm -hmm. And this gentleman is a wealth of information, and we're so happy to have him on the show. Welcome, Walden. Man, I'm so happy to be here. It's a pleasure. And just pumped to be here and talk more about everything COVID. <laughs> and COVID and, and how it relates to the new normal. As, as you and I have yeah. talked about, and, and Quentin and I, we've talked about in, in previous episodes, there's a really bad negative connotation with what the new normal means. And when Quentin and I put this podcast together, it was coming at it at an angle that we were thinking, well, the new normal doesn't have to be a bad thing. And how can we position ourselves in our mentality and our philosophy and, and how we interpret the news for the new normal and, and what that means for, for us. And you as a business and business leader, as an entrepreneur, um, someone who has a lot to offer in, in way of consulting. Um, we just wanted to give your, get your take on the current events, get your take on business pre COVID and then post COVID or, or in the interim COVID and then post COVID. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came into the entrepreneur life. Yeah, that's a, that's a long question. It could be here all night, but uh, my, my background is I'm from a, a cattle ranching family in the middle of Wyoming, believe it or not. And I grew up like just working my ass off basically at four years old. And basically I, I realized that the only way to get away from the ranch or get away from the oil and gas industry of Wyoming was to basically go to college. And the only way I was gonna to get to college, because I wasn't the smartest guy, was to play football, right? So I busted my ass all the way through high school. I went and played college football in Montana. And while I was in Montana, I started my first business because literally I just wanted more beer money. 
<laughs> like at the end of the day, like the joke, the joke is like literally that like entrepreneurship will find you when you're just seeking for something more. Right. So I started this business. Uh, I sold it after about a year. I started a, started my next business and sold it about 11 months later, got invested into an incubator and created and started a couple dozen companies. Uh, and now like I live in Chicago, I'm happily married, three kids, and we have four businesses like that we're actively building right now. And just it's 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 amazing to live in the time we do. But I've been all over the world. We've had hundreds of clients, big and small, Fortune 100, all the way down to startups. We focus the majority of our time on business to business, and we we really love um, taking our kids around the the world seeing different places uh, just experiencing different things and uh, building businesses that affect not only our legacy but the people that are our clients legacies so tell me about uh growing up in wyoming and, and you said a cattle ranch is is that what you were keeping busy with yeah so we um growing up we had um the ranch i grew up on was about five hundred thousand acres wow so it's more land than most people ever like think of or see of in their life right it's bigger than a football we field up, oh <laughs> much bigger than a football field uh so we grew up uh we had in any given time about 20 to thirty thousand black angus cattle that we ran uh we had hundreds of horses we had thousands of sheep on my man, my on my mom's side of the family we had four wheelers we had people it, it was a production right but the thing that most people don't tell you about cattle ranches is cattle market is kind of shitty right now, right? So uh, most ranchers, most cattle people, most people that own land that graze make the majority of their money through oil and gas, uranium, oil, or I'm sorry, uh, water, uranium, and then basically on the other side of gravel, uh, anything with like uh, things underground, right? <laughs> That's where people make their money. But like growing up, like we spent every day fixing fence and trailing cattle and breaking horses and just paying and doing all the manual work, which led into a, a phenomenal work ethic. But it also led me into saying when I turned 18, here's a handshake saying, I'm never going to ride a horse again and I'm going to college. <laughs> right. So like uh, at 18, I was completely done with the ranch and ready to move on. Do you think that's what kind of set you on the entrepreneurial path or was there something that, I guess, did you have a mentor in high school that that shaped you and molded you? I think we all have that one teacher that we can always reflect back on and say, oh, if it wasn't for, you know, Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so, <laughs> they set me on the path. Did you have someone like that? You know what? I, uh, like, I was so focused on sports. Like, I didn't really care about, like, I grew, so the analogy that I have is like, you look at like Texas football, right? Like Texas athletes, like they don't have to go to school. They play football, right? <laughs> so like same thing like in Wyoming. Wyoming football is a huge thing. So like we don't have to like like they they sign us out of classes so that we could go watch film or they sign us out of classes so we could go get ready for the game type of thing, right? So like we got favoritism because we were athletes, you know. But like the, the thing that really drove me the hardest is my junior year high school heading into my senior year my parents actually got divorced right so like it gave me this huge like shift of emotion priority just like overall focus but then also I had I had a lot of friends in high school 
and like mind you this is wyoming so we had a very small amount of people at my high school my graduating class was only 40 people right so like it's tiny <laughs> you know like the whole population in wyoming is only 500,000 people right right so like it goes all over the place but like during my junior year, senior year of high school, we started partying a lot more because like we couldn't really get in trouble. But I had a lot of friends that like had all these great ideas, but they had no way to go do them, right? Or they had all this stuff that they wanted to go do in their life, but like they weren't willing to take a sacrifice and just go do it, right? So like I started to see this perspective as young as like freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year of high school saying, man, like, these guys are getting stuck here. And even, even now today, like I still follow up with all my friends and people from high school, but like I was one of the only guys in my whole class, let alone my whole high school that actually went on to college. Like it, it was crazy because most of these people are still there now. And it, mm. it's crazy to see that perspective shift of like everybody that graduated high school went on to make six figures in the oil and gas industry. But now oil and crude is negative $50 a barrel, right? What are they going to do? You know, like, it's just crazy to start to see this perspective of like, you had all these great ideas in high school, but you didn't have the risk and the fear tolerance to actually go make it happen. Whereas like, I, I took the liberty to go to college to go do these things. But then like, instantly, as soon as I had an idea for something, I make it happen. I have the next idea. I make it happen. I don't care if I'm in the middle of the other idea. I'm still going to start taking those steps. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And and when you're in high school, you you kind of have that bubble. You have that protection of, you know, whether it's your coach or or that favorite teacher that's taking care of you. Talk to me a little bit about the that kind of fear that motivates you to to jump into these different ventures and and not a play on your your existing uh, company venture studios. But what what is it that motivates you and and you know, were you taking some of these ideas that they had and, and building upon them and saying, hey, come with me? Or were you coming up with your own ideas and, and just running with those? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not a Mark Zuckerberg, right? So I'm not going to take somebody else's idea. Right. <laughs> but uh, basically, it just it gave me the perspective of like, these people are going to miss out. So mm. the moment that I have an idea, I'm going to take action on it. It doesn't matter if I'm going to build a logo for it so it becomes real, or it doesn't matter if I'm going to reach out to a programmer to start programming. It doesn't matter if I'm going to reach out to somebody in real estate and find a location for it. I'm going to take a step to make it real, right? And the moment that you take that first step, you're eliminating fear because the, the first emotions that set on you when you have these ideas is the mindset of, all right, well, I'm not good enough to do this. Or what, what if, if I fail? Yeah, what if, what if, what if, what if I fail? What if I run out of money? What if everybody hates me? What if my wife divorces me? What if my kids hate me? Like, what if, what if, what if, what if, right? So like the same thing happens here is I, I'm, I hate the what ifs. I hate the fear side of things. I hate the risk side of things. Like, yeah, things are risky. Entrepreneurship is risky. If you don't have a high risk tolerances, like, entrepreneurship is probably not for you, right? <laughs> like you have to be willing to take a risk and have the faith and the mindset to know that what you're taking a risk on is going to pan out and that God is going to bless it. If he doesn't bless it, then it's not for you, right? But more than likely, like just taking that first step in faith out will lead you into what I call, uh, <laughs> like I, I literally see myself as psychologically unemployable 
Like the moment that you experience freedom of entrepreneurship, you become psychologically unemployable. Like, oh, I, I totally feel that. You'll never go back to being employed. Like it's almost ever. like the prison mentality, right? Like I'm never going back. <laughs> I'm never going back. I'm on strike three. Like if I go back, it's the death sentence, right? right. <laughs> like, it's just not happening. So like literally like growing up, seeing everybody that had all these ideas for brands and logos and products and services all stay exactly where they were and all be in the mindset of, I don't have the money. I don't have the wealth. I don't have the mindset. I don't have the skill set to go do these things. Whereas like I go to college, the first idea I have, I'm just like, I'm going with it, running with it, sell it 12 months later. You know, like, like it's because I took that first step. And if I didn't take that first step, I'd still be stuck in that fear mindset. So I think a lot of things that that you're touching on with respect to jumping into something new and that fear and the what ifs, um, talk to me a little bit about not being the single point of failure in those ideas. And, you know, if you're not the graphic designer, you know, what, what were the steps that you took to get these ideas to the table, even though you weren't the programmer or you weren't the, you know, financier, what did you do to pull some of these, I guess, assets together and resources to make that idea come to life? What did it take for you to get, get that first idea off the ground? Yeah. My, my, uh, my favorite quote in business and a philosophy that I live by is the who, not the how, right? So when I'm, I'm, when I'm building something out, when I'm searching something out, like I'm looking for the who that can get it done, not how it's going to get done. Because if you're so focused on how it's going to get, get done, you're going to try to do it. You're going to try to find somebody personally right next to you to maybe help you accomplish that, right? Whereas if you're focused on the who, that's going to accomplish it. It's focused on bringing in and raising up a team of people with you, but also then figuring out who is going to accomplish it for you. So that your time is now better suited for something else. Right. So like that, that's a philosophy that I've lived in, lived in and lived by for a long time. And overall, like I, I can't say that there's a better philosophy to live in business because if you're so focused on just, how something's going to get in, how this is going to get in, how this is going to get in. Like it's stress, it's fear, it's hardship, it's heartache. It's trying to figure out how all this stuff's going to get done. And just instead of just saying, man, like I suck at numbers. I need to hire an accountant. I suck at web design. I should hire a web developer. I suck at graphic design. I should get a graphic designer, you know, or a copywriter or social media or this or this or this or sales or this or this or this. Like it's all these people that, if you bring them on and now they're all taking foothold into your company and they're all doing things that you should have been like grooming people into. Now these people are taking control of those assets and now you don't have to be responsible for those fields. Right. So it's not about how things are getting done. It's about who's going to do those things. So how do you talk to somebody who's trying to start a business and they have, for all intents and purposes, they have a selfish mentality, right? They they are hoarding the idea, they are hoarding the profits, they are hoarding the intellectual um, accolades that'll come from from the business idea. How do you speak to someone who wants to take all of it on? Who wants to do the logo, the design, all of the everything, right? They want to be everything for everyone in that business. How do you talk them into saying you got to let go and you're going to fail if if you don't do that? Yeah, I. Uh... 
There's a few people I know that have made like millions of dollars by themselves, just one-off people, right? Like, I'm not saying this is like, this is definitely like an anomaly. Like this is something rare, unique. Like they're the unicorns, right? They, they go out and they're able to do it all. They can build their sales funnels their websites or logos, their branding, their strategy. They can do all their email marketing. They can do all by themselves. They are a unicorn. And like, they're not, they're not common. They, they, they give the, the, the marketing world a bad rap because they're able to go out and create a million dollars by themselves, right? Where the majority of people, they need to bring on a team. The majority of people will never make a million dollars because they refuse to bring on a team. If, if you get in the mindset of like, man, I don't want to be the unicorn because like I'm, I was not created like that. People that are created like that are uniquely created just to be the unicorn by themselves but usually those unicorns will not go on to make 10 or 50 or hundred million dollars because they have to do it themselves and it's not scalable or foreseeable. Right. Whereas the people that go out and they're like, man, I'm going to bring on a team of people around me. I'm going to bring on the best tech. I'm going to bring on the best copy people. I'm going to bring on the funnel people. I'm going to bring operations, HR, whatever those things are, bring all those people together. We're going to create a team. This team of people now is putting together 80, 100, 200 hours a day, like worth of hours to grow an idea or a business, right? Now, instead of making a million dollars a year, now you're capable of making that 10 million or that 50 million or that hundred million dollars in a business. Without a team of people, you'll never be able to scale and grow. And I think that's something that most entrepreneurs overlook. What are some of the steps that you would give an entrepreneur or, or a newly minted solopreneur who's trying to get into this and, and trying to build that team? What are some of the avenues and resources that you have found to be successful in, in vetting out um, new team members? You know, do you, do you go the dreaded route of working with family, right? You know, do you hire on Uncle Bob who happens to know a couple of things? You know, is that the best way to do business is, is you know, bring on your best friend who, who knows how to do certain things? Walk me through some of the the steps and resources that you would uh, encourage an entrepreneur to go through. I, I definitely don't speak legal knees, but like legal and Latin people, <laughs> uh, I I won't hire somebody without a full on contract, right? So even if it's family, I don't care. You know, Jerry Springer exists for a reason. <laughs> like, <laughs> people get sucked into family affairs all the time and it's nasty. People owe money to people. People were invested in a startup. People hired their brother, hired their uncle, hired their aunt. They embezzled 50, $100 million from whatever it was. But like that stuff all happens, you know? And what you're looking for is not the worst case scenario or the best case. Basically, I'm not looking for like the best say, best case scenario where I hire my uncle and he makes me a hundred million dollars. I'm working for the worst case scenario where I hired him. He embezzled a hundred million dollars from me and now I'm suing my uncle. Right. So I'm, I'm looking for the legal paperwork. I'm looking for the guarantees of who I hire. When I look at who I hire, I'm not, I'm not biased against who I hire. I'll hire family if they're the best fit. I, I will hire like complete strangers in the middle of the Philippines or Israel or around the whole globe, if they're the best fit, I don't care what their rate is. If they're the best fit for the team, they're on the team. Like I want the A team. I don't want the B team. Right. So like I have literally looked at my criteria, my like just overall what I need in somebody. 
and I will build a portfolio around what I need that person to do, right? So when I get ready to interview them, I'm not interviewing them just one time or two times or three times. I might interview somebody for six months to see how they change over six months, to see their attitude, to see their demeanor, to see how they handle things differently over six months. I might wait and give them a couple small tasks, a couple small like little projects just to say, hey, I'll give you a thousand bucks, go do this. 2,000, go do this. 10,000, go do this. But I want to see how you handle small things. I want to see how you interact with the team, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not just going to go out. I'm not going to just interview somebody and then hire them on the spot. I'm going to test them. I'm going to try them out. I'm going to make sure that they are a good fit for the team because I'm building a culture. I want to build out and say, yes, things got tough. I had to cut you back. What's it look like if I cut you back, right? How are you going to act if I cut you back compared to somebody else back? What if I have to fire everybody? What's that look like? How are you going to act, right? I want to test out all these theories before we even get into things, even if the business is completely stable, (laughs) right? Because this is a probationary time. I'm looking for probationary people that will show me the good, the bad, and the ugly over a 90-day period. And then by the end of it, be like, man, like, even when things got tough, I knew I could count on Quentin and Sal, right? Like, I knew that they were on my side. You know, so like it just gives me that perspective going through this interview process. When you first started your first business right out of college, um, was that the pizza business? I, I, I recall this story when, when we did a mastermind group, uh, you and I, is that the pizza story? Is that one of the other? No, ones? no, that was a, that was it, while I was in college, but okay. the first couple of businesses were before. And then right after college, I started a business in the energy sector. So, okay. Walk us through the pizza story, because I think that was a really good, I think the the moral behind that one was a, a marketing campaign. Yeah, so we had a we had a cleaning company that we started to build up, both right. commercial and real estate, or uh, sorry, residential. And basically, we were coming up with different ways to market this in college towns, right? So our, our marketing message was basically, we'd go to business owners and we'd say, we'll clean your office for free, but we want to market to whatever product or service you're delivering. And our best like return on investment was actually cleaning a Domino's, like like <laughs> Domino's restaurant slash like wow. late night delivery service in a college town, right? So like we we would go there and we clean it for free after hours, but then every single pizza box that went out the door had our flyers on it for our cleaning company that would come in and say, like, hey, after your party or after your get together hire us to come and to clean up your clean up your mess right so like it was amazing it was the top seller or top return on investment but like it's just one of those mindsets of like thinking outside the box it's like man like even during right now with like all the pandemic stuff right like people are ordering out and taking out all the time like how can i be part of that you know and Mm. like i'm part of a couple other businesses right now that like like they're putting together like 10, 20, $100,000 like delivery services where they'll go buy food and deliver it to the first responders because they know their name and their packaging is all over everything. You know, mm-hmm. these guys are financial financial advisors, wealth advisors, people like that that are coming together, creating all this hype and buzz, raising a bunch of money, and then just putting together food packages and bundles that get served out to everybody. But their name and their logo, their branding, all this stuff's over everything. Because when it comes down to it, when all this is said and done, like, are you going to remember the financial advisor that did nothing? Or are you going to remember the financial advisor that bought you a pizza on a Monday when nobody else did? (laughs) 
Exactly. And I think that transitions nicely in, into what this podcast is all about, is transitioning your mindset into that new normal where it doesn't have to be a bad thing, right? So after 9-11, the new normal was we had TSA patting us down and we had body scanners. And, you know, after the shoe bomber, the new normal was we had to take off our shoes. You know, what does the new normal look like for for not only entrepreneurs, but just for the layman, for for the everyday working person who who is in the COVID mindset right now? And I think what you touched on was was that pivot as as someone who was running a cleaning business in a college town you saw where the the supply and the demand was right so the college students were demanding the pizza and the pizza joint was your kind of lead in to to the business talk to me talk to talk to the viewers talk to the listeners about where you see business being transformed like how how many of your clients your existing clients have been affected by the covid situation and how have you helped them pivot or at least try to give them guidance in in pivoting their business if you can give an example of a type of business or or even a client yeah no i like the world we live in is crazy nowadays so uh <clears throat> right like is is probably march like right when i started to get really bad in chicago I actually got to do a one hour segment on COVID on Fox 32 news. So like got aired all the way through the Midwest. Some of the, the sound bits got picked up nationwide. Like, but basically my role was a business expert. So I got to step in and talk about how COVID is affecting local business here in Chicago. And I, I felt really bad because everybody else on the show, like we had, we had nurses, we had travel people, we had um, a lawyer, like from the legal aspect, everybody's dooming gloom right like they hated it like they're like man like we're gonna have unemployment claims from the lawyer we're gonna have like hospitals overrunning from the doctor we're gonna have cancellations and refunds from the travel people right like everybody's dooming gloom and nasty and i'm sitting here as a business guy going man i love this shit <laughs> you know like this is awesome because we're never going to be in a better position coming out of this recession as we were coming out of anything else right like we're operating leaner and better than we ever have as businesses that are actually open right now as essential businesses than we ever have, right? We're not traveling. Our salespeople are at home. Our marketing's on point. We're still getting sales. Nobody's going to the office. Like now is the time. Now we are building up an environment of digital culture where it's part-time at the office, part-time at home, no travel, high sales. All these things are coming to the like fruition, right? All this stuff's amazing. Uh, on the other side, we have people making shifts because maybe now, like with the travel side, maybe we are seeing a big change in how people travel, why they travel, when they travel, all these things. Maybe as uh, like restaurants and stuff like come in and out of business over the next 90 days, like we're going to see a dramatic shift in businesses and how they operate like when they come out of COVID. But like right now, there's more positive than negative. Like there really is if you look at it. And yes, pe some people, some businesses, they're going to go out of business. It's not, it's going to happen. Like it's, there's no way around right, it. Right. It's inevitable. You know? It's inevitable. Well, and, and you, you're going to see that in a lot of the companies that were not running lean to begin with, right? The companies who were being efficient, the companies who were running as lean as they could, even if they had a little fat in their budget, you know, now they're, they're really tightening up the, the purse strings are really tightening it up. Um, are, are there any specific industries or, or, or clients that you, you've 
helped over the last 40 days that we've been into this COVID situation that you, you've seen an exact uh, response to, to COVID and, and what happened and how they had to pivot? Man, what I'm seeing right now is the, so a, a separate company that I'm part of is actually uh, a sector in the private equity world. So uh, we buy up and sell a bunch of businesses through this private equity exchange. Uh, what I'm seeing right now is a crazy demand. It, and you might think this is crazy, but like ammo, guns, like that that world right now. That's not crazy at all. Well, no. So like, get this, like we have we have clients overseas right now in like the Africas, like, like third, second, third world countries somewhere in there, you know, like places that are struggling, but coming out real. Like they, they are buying up ammo for three times the cost because like they think that COVID is going to be a bigger pandemic than AIDS because of like how it's spreading and doing all this stuff. Right. So like, like we have ammo manufacturers here in the States that instantly started putting a dollar per round in profit per order going overseas. And there's still people buying 80, hundred, $200 million in ammo a pop. Like these big leaders are buying it up. Right. So like, that world is changing dramatically because it's now becoming a global thing where the U S is the main manufacturer in most of that stuff, the quality stuff at least. And people are buying that up, right? It's crazy. And then you start to look at the food industries, like people got to eat, but if so, like right now with COVID, right? So we can't import export a lot of food, right? So like, let's, let's take an example, like Maine lobster tail, Maine lobster tail. It usually sells for $32 a tail right now selling for like four to five dollars a tail because it's perishable and people can't like people aren't buying it overseas which is their biggest sellers right so now we're trying to keep all of our main lobster tail in the states but we're selling it for four to five dollars a lobster tail to the retailers right so all that stuff starts to change compared to china now owns yum brands which is one of the united states biggest food manufacturers right right so like we start to see that whole shift because now if china owns our food manufacturers, what are they going to start charging us if we can't import export, right? They can control all the prices for KFC and Taco Bell and Long John Silver's and all the all the companies part of Yum Brands, right? So I'm watching food. I'm watching the, the ammo and the defense sectors. I'm watching manufacturing huge because this, this whole push is bringing manufacturers back stateside. Even if you look at Tesla, Tesla hasn't rolled out a new car off their rolling lines for probably two months now because they can't get the, the grommets and the screws stateside because stateside people want 20 cents a screw and grommet for a Tesla car, whereas overseas, Tesla was getting those grommets and those screws for about one or two cents, right? So they're paying 10 times the amount to get it made back here in the U.S., so they're refusing to make cars, right? So it's like there's there's a ton of different industries just like going bam, 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 back and forth, I'm watching aerospace and like all this stuff happening there. Because usually when pandemics and recessions happen, aerospace and basically anything boats, boats, freight, boats, people, whether it's cruise lines, whatever it is, boats are grounded, flights are grounded. So you see the airlines, you see the boat manufacturers coming through taking them all out of water and putting them all back to new and like building them all back up. Right. So like you're seeing these industries drop tons of money because they know the government's going to come bail them out and they're dropping it all into upgrading their fleets. And it's, it's, right. it's, it's crazy to see these little industries start to 
make their changes and pivots. So. Well, there's a huge domino effect, in, and I think you just outlined how one affects the other affects the other. Quentin, you had a lot of thought on the the upcoming food shortage, and, and Walden, you just kind of touched on it. Quentin, talk to me a little bit about, I, I was being a little bit more optimistic, and I said in the next three months, we might be seeing a very real food shortage in, in the States, and, and you went a little bit more... Um, uh, pessimistic <laughs> yeah, and we're so, saying a little bit closer to two weeks not to scare anybody who's listening but well the, the shortages yeah. have already occurred um so i know the national guard is now working with food banks to distribute food i mean they're basically distributing millions of pounds a day in certain cities um what's odd is that food banks usually get their food from mexico and american producers um usually get their or send their food to restaurants here in this country. This going be a serious problem because the restaurants are closed. The American producers have been destroying food largely. And uh, we're going to see a decrease in imports from Mexico because they're going to be having shortage of, shortages of, of their own with the, the inability to import food from certain countries that are affected. So it's going to have a cascading effect. You're going to have cascading failures all across the system because food isn't making it across national borders some cases it's not making it across state borders so you have that we had major flooding in the u.s last year i know a lot of people could not harvest because of the moisture last year a lot of crops died in the field and then once they were able to harvest because the water finally receded you had snow on the ground and you know it was, it was no good at that point um so we had that um now you have locust plagues and believe it or not, there's places in Saudi Arabia and in the Middle East that actually have very successful farming operations um, because there's an immense amount of water underground. But right now you have a locust plague that swept through Africa, the Middle East, and it's in Asia right now. It's done an immense amount of damage. You had the wildfires in Australia. A lot of uh, the world's beef comes from the outback. A lot of the meat in the form of lamb and other livestock come from that area as well. And a lot of grains come from those areas. So there's a worldwide crop failure that has occurred within the last, you know, 18 months. Um, but mainly it's been within the last nine months. Uh, and this has been a serious problem. So we're going to start seeing the infrastructure. Well, we've, we've already seen it. We've already seen the transportation infrastructure around food distribution breakdown, right? So that's going to continue. And that just compounded the problem of famine and crop failure. Now we have a problem where distribution is uh, almost, you know, it's, it's, it's not even just broken down. It's just ground to a halt in some places, right? It's not delayed. It's indefinitely delayed. So that's a serious problem. Um, I don't really know what the solution is or, or if there is a solution at all. You brought up the ammo cells to Africa. Well, every famine uh, that occurs in Africa always is a prelude to war. Um, and I think that's probably why they're buying ammunition. It's either for population, uh, you know, riot control, uh, civil unrest, or it's to go to war with their neighbors to take their food because that's, that's the history of that continent. Um, so that doesn't really surprise me. And that is kind of a portent of doom, at least for that continent. But I mean, the world gets a lot of food from Africa, especially Europe and parts of the Middle East. So it, it spells doom for a lot of people. A lot of our, our, we're not sure, I brought up earlier today to Sal, we're, we're pretty sure that livestock can become affected with COVID. And I pose the question, um, are these meat 
packing workers or the slaughterhouse employees, are they giving each other COVID and creating outbreaks within the slaughterhouse? Or do we already have a situation where livestock are infected in, in, in mass in this country? I think it's probably the latter. Because all it takes is one person at these feedlots and these chicken houses to infect an entire flock or a herd. That's it. We know it's zoonotic. The animals can get it. Now you have a problem. So then you have to start culling livestock. Because you, you can't even let people handle this meat, you know, once you, you've slaughtered it or you risk a further outbreak. So that's a serious problem. Brazil is one of the largest beef producers in the world. And they're right now in the midst of uh, a COVID outbreak themselves, and it's growing larger every day. Um, so I think the food situation is going to become pretty grim in the near future. Yeah. I, I mean, I would uh, actually really agree with that. And I think it drives a lot of questions on why we're importing as much as we are when we could yeah. be domestically sourcing a lot of it. But I mean, even even the beef market, you know, like we, we produce enough beef in the United States to feed everybody in the United States, right? Like, like <laughs> it, it's crazy to start to look at like the numbers on how we could sustain ourselves if we weren't trying to like bring in bring in other things, export other things, everything like that. But like, I do agree with that. And like, I know that the school's out of like session, like the number one consumer of milk is the school, right? So like a cafeteria is eating more milk and more dairy products than anything else out there, which like, depending on your health perspective, that's good or bad, but like milk producers going out of business right now, anybody in the chicken industry, like Tyson, all these big food industries that are around chicken, like, they can't produce and sell a chicken fast enough. Like right now, chickens are literally their knees and their legs are breaking because they're getting too fat before they get to the actual um, slaughterhouse, right? So like we're seeing spoilage of food here in the United States because we're not rapidly consuming. Because as soon as COVID happened, every American went out and filled their deep freeze full of protein and they went out and bought enough toilet paper to last until the end of the millennium, right? So, <laughs> like, like that's that's a sad story, but it's true. Like, the first things that we all bought was proteins for our freezer, yep. and we bought toilet paper, right? So now we're all sitting here with all this protein in our freezer, so we're not buying anything. So we're not buying chicken, we're not buying beef, we're not buying lamb, we're not buying anything animal-based, right? Because we already have a ton of it in our freezer. So where, where's it going? It's all spoiling. It's all rotting because we can't export it because nobody's importing right now. And our own citizens aren't buying it up fast enough, right? So now we're seeing the market crash just like we're seeing $0 barrels of oil. <laughs> like it's just a huge global issue. So, And, and that I just goes to back to the... Thing. I was just going to say that goes back to the domino effect that it's happening. You know, it's not just a, a really intense flu regardless of, of your point of view you know we talked about this on our on our last episode is it a bioweapon or is it you know just a really really bad flu um but it, it's a domino effect like this isn't just dealing with the effects of illness and sickness and hospitals being overrun this has created a cascade of issues and and in the very beginning when it was around january and february quentin and i were talking it's like yeah, these lockdowns, it's its coming, right? Like the Houston rodeo, it's done. You know, you, you, your kids, they're out of school. They're done. You know, don't, don't look for them to go back to school. We're going to be doing this in June and probably July. And now we're starting to get reports that things are going to go into August. And people aren't even thinking about, okay, I just want to go to the nail salon. I just want to go get my hair done. They're not thinking three years down the road. 
And that's where our mindset needs to be three years down the road. Quentin. And that's realistically how long a, a vaccine can take from what I understand. I mean, optimistically sometime within a year, but realistically it could be somewhere in the time frame of three years. I wanted to touch on something that uh, Weldon brought up, uh, the fact that uh, our, our assets are owned by foreign countries. It's a serious national security threat. This is why sometimes uh, too much of a good thing can actually end up killing you. You know, uh, this is ludicrous that somebody who's potentially adversarial owns uh, a tremendous amount of our food distribution resources. Um, well, you know, I, I can add one kind of scary thing on top of that if you want to sure. yeah. hear me out yeah, for a ahead. second. Uh, one of the college or one of the, the businesses I started right after college is in the land management sector, right? So, like land management and figuring out who owned what mineral ownership rights of what the ground we stand on. So like if you went out, went out onto an acre of land of Wyoming, we are pulling reports and generating reports on who owned land minerals of that ground, right? Because people own the ground that we stand on and people own everything underneath the ground we stand on, right? So even in Wyoming, which is a super Republican state, like we had the majority of like in, inquiries and then people buying up and buying up land deeds, mineral rights, things like that from China. So like China's buying up the land that we're standing on, but not underneath, or, but not what we're standing on, but underneath us. So like China and overseas, like through holding companies and through other corporations are actually buying up what's underneath the ground. So they're buying our minerals, they're buying our energy, they're buying the rights to our water. Like if water can, water in my opinion is going to be the biggest like thing that happens in the next hundred years. Right. So if, China owns all the water in the U.S. What the heck are we going to do, right? So, like, but they're buying it up in places that start out as energy energy heavy like areas, and now they're kind of expanding out from there. So, and we talked about this on on the last episode with regard to China buying up a lot of assets. Even NATO put out a publication; they put out a warning that China is buying up a whole bunch of assets now that everything is tanking. And it begs the question: you know, it, it can definitely make you go very conspiratorial in how this came about. Was there, at, at the very minimum, they're taking advantage of it? Right. In such a way that, as Walden pointed out and as Quentin pointed out with Smithfield and all of these other uh, holding companies and companies that own our food, our water, our mineral rights. What are we getting ourselves into? Right. So people are concerned about the, the most trivial things right now. Again, when can I go to the nail salon again? They're not thinking about who owns the property that you are standing on. They're not thinking about the food and where it's coming from. They're worried about when they can go get the food because they're being told they can only go one direction in Walmart. But at the same time, they're not even thinking about the fact that that food is not being processed here. Or if it is, it, it's being grown here and then sent to China to get processed and then comes back here. And and I don't know enough about that industry to, to, to really make a comment on whether or not that's smart business it just doesn't make sense to me that we one, grow it here. Here's my find this funny actually, but one of the one of the top exports of Wyoming is actually wild horses, and they send horses to China to eat, right? Yeah. So like it's crazy. But like I, I was actually just telling my wife this earlier. Like one of the one of the stories of the revelations in Bible is like just talking about how the end times is marked by war, right? But like most people have it in their mind that war is actually like physical and military and just like fighting and nuking people and blowing people up with bombs and shit and like shooting each other 
eye to eye, right? But that's not what this is. Like, no, this is fourth generational warfare. Yeah, this is fourth generational. This is financial warfare where China, if they wanted to, they could overcome the U.S. They have billion. They have a billion people. We have three hundred million. The numbers say that they would take out a ton of us before we would actually submit, right? But if let's just say they don't have the, the the military army to do so, or if they don't have weapons of mass destruction, which we all know they do, but now they come to the U.S. and they take our food, they take our water, they take our energy, they take our soil because they actually do it because they own it. Like now we become slaves. We don't become overthrown. Maybe we become slaves. The United States become a slave to another country, right? Yep. Because they actually- should have been on episode two. <laughs> yeah. We talked about, you know, the fact that we're, we're becoming China's serfs to, to a certain degree that yeah. they are, they are buying up so much of our assets. I agree. I haven't even so listened to that assets. episode, but I completely <laughs> it's, agree. it's worth a listen. If I could say a couple things, uh, first off, we have an embargo on Cuba. There's an embargo on Cuban products and they're a joke. Like that is a joke country. It's hilarious to think that Cuba could ever even threaten the United States. There's an embargo on Cuba, China free reign. They can lobby our government, which lobbying, that's a whole other diatribe on, on, on itself. But the, a foreign country has access to lobby our government uh, against the people of this country, basically against our will, because really vote on that. But, uh, you know, and, and it could be potentially adversarial, whatever they're lobbying for. If they extract resources from underneath our feet, they can lobby the government to ease EPA restrictions and basically poison us. To get the to get the minerals to take back to China, and there's nothing you can do about it, you know. And so it's like I am I'm a, I'm a capitalist. I believe in free market, but we used to have a much more regulated and secured market, and it, it was to protect us from threats like this because too much of a good thing can kill you too. They're communists. They follow the tenets of Marx. Marx said a capitalist will hang. You know, a capitalist will sell you the rope that you hang him, and and they abide by those. Uh, you know, uh, that treatise, and it, it's just no surprise. Uh, that they would end up doing something, or it shouldn't be a surprise when it comes that they're going to you know, do something nefarious uh, with our own laws and our, our way of doing business. They'll just use it against us. Well, then you brought up a, an interesting story before we hit the record button. I'd like to kind of touch back on that. And you alluded to the fact that the prelude to to a lot of the insight that is happening in Africa is potentially happening over in the Philippines as well. You have some connections over there through your businesses and through, through your employees. Um, tell us about what's happening over in the Philippines. Yeah. So through venture studio, we have teams of people all over the globe. So um, our main, main services are consulting and operations, but we also have gross projects. So we'll bring in coding design writers, developers, social media people from all over the globe and have them work on projects, right? So it's been really like, it's been more of a case study to see this over since basically the end of December all the way until present date as things evolved in other countries, right? So like we have, we've worked with clients in the countries that first got the main exposure. So like we have clients in Japan and China and Spain and Italy and Europe or like throughout Europe and like just everywhere. So we've got to kind of see this evolve through our meetings and how things have like taken place. Right. So like when, when, when countries started first going into quarantine, like we saw that before it actually happened here in the States, like one of our main, like huge clients is out of Puerto Rico. And we saw them roll out martial law and 
like the the time requirements that say basically you you can't be out after dusk and you can't be up earlier than the sun and basically basically last digit of your your license plate you can't drive on certain days right puerto rico ruled all that stuff out in like february right so like our clients in out of puerto rico have been reporting that like they've been under martial law with military guidance like I had a client get chased out of the ocean by a helicopter, like literally two weeks ago, right? So like just crazy stuff happening even there. But the craziest of all of them is my guys out of the Philippines. So like we've been like working with calling departments, salespeople, like all kinds of like operational people, people that have like bachelors, masters, doctorates in specific subjects out of Puerto Rico and or, I'm sorry, out of the Philippines that actually either do work for us or our clients. And we've been talking with them like pretty much daily to make sure that they're okay because literally like two weeks ago and at the end of last week, the president of the Philippines came out and literally said that if you violate quarantine, if you violate our command, I'm giving control to the military that they have the rights to shoot you in the streets for violating quarantine. You know, like you can get on Google and Google this, like the president of the Philippines coming out and saying, like, literally, you do not abide by our command. We're going to shoot you in the streets. OK, that's messed up as it is this last week or yeah, this last whole week. So I know today is a Sunday, but like this last week they came out and they started giving people COVID numbers. So certificates of vaccination ID numbers where they're actually a number pertaining to each citizen, like a social security number to the US would be a COVID number to the Philippines, where now each person of a family is getting identified with a like a, a certain digit number, I don't remember how many, but based on the last three digits of that number, it tells them which days they can actually go into public and which days they have to stay home completely. And like basically people are locked in or they can't even go. So like, our workers that were supposed to be going to the office every day, now they can only go to the office every three days. And because the Philippines has terrible Wi-Fi, now we just lost half of our working like base out of the Philippines because they're only able to go to the office every third day, let alone their families who can only survive every third day on food because there's not a lot of money in the Philippines, right? So like we're seeing this stuff pop up all over the globe in different countries that are related back to the US and it's, it's crazy to see. And what that does is, is honestly, it's going to foment a lot of anxiety. It's going to foment a lot of uh, uprisings in in these different in these different locations, and we're seeing it in a very, very tame way, in in a very American way, I guess is 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 one way to put it. That we're we're seeing a lot of protests. We're seeing a lot of let us go back to work protests, which is enlightening to see. Right, people want to go back to work, but will we as Americans get to that point? Do you guys believe that we have the, the infrastructure to support our, our workers, um, our entrepreneurs, our businesses, as they continue to go weeks and months without profits, these restaurants that, you know, are, are going against the, the orders, right? There's, so there's the, um, there's the grill in Houston. I forget a federal grill. I think it is. He just, the owner just said, I'm, I'm opening. Like you can't tell me I can't work anymore. You can't tell me I can't have my employees and their families who are depending on us. You just can't tell us that. So a, a soft form of protest is what well, we're just going to go to work. Right. So 
we're not seeing a, a civil unrest in that capacity, but as these as these other nations, uh, again, we're, we're what, almost 30 to 40 days behind some of these nations, do we become a nation that starts to see these type of civil unrest in, in pockets or, you know, does it, does it become some sort of uh, civil war where you see things like Michigan and their, the governor over there who, who is refusing to give up power? It, it, you know, I had this kind of conversation with somebody a couple of days ago where, you know, they basically said, well, we, we need to go back to work. It's, it's just the flu or whatever. And, you know, the government is doing this and that and says, you know, they're going to reopen. And I was like, man, they also said it could be a bioweapon, you know, that is seriously, that it's, it's something that our leaders are proposing. This could be a bioweapon. Do you at any point, do, do you think at any point in time during like the eighties or the seventies think that if we had been a chat attacked by like Brezhnev or Gorbachev with a bioweapon, and we thought we had, we would just be, laissez-faire letting them open and the government's response would basically be a giant cop-out where they didn't have to take any responsibility for what the states did no if we thought we had been just you know just been attacked by the soviet union with a bioweapon we just assumed that in any way there would be a massive federal response you would do things like send people into cheyenne mountain or raven rock or mount weather things that the military is already doing and, and increasing the force protection condition and defense condition so the federal government from a military standpoint is taking this like it, it could be potentially an attack. But as far as the people are concerned, hands off laissez-faire. It's a really strange mixed message. Also, I run a small business. You know, I, I, I love free enterprise. But at the same time, most people are underemployed. Most people work for big box or, or nameless whatever tech company. And you work for a faceless bureaucracy, and they're, at the same time, you're saying, oh, I don't want to be dependent on the, the government, which is a faceless bureaucracy. Why is dependent on, dependence on one faceless bureaucracy better than another? I don't understand that. Uh, and it, are your lives really worth that job? I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, it, I was having a conversation, you know, with, with somebody, and this goes back to the whole mixed response. It's, you know, the United States can handle this. We can handle anything. Well, the same people say that the media caused this giant hoax, so it doesn't even look like we can handle free press anymore, if that's the case. So this poses a lot of really strange uh, questions. And when I told this to these guys, it was like you know, extreme cognitive dissonance, but we're, we're, we have major questions. No one's asking them. No one's even thinking to ask them. We're not getting answers. We're just saying we're just saying, uh, with the federal government, we don't handle these things. No, you do. There's a supremacy clause. The ball is in your court. If you think we need to reopen, maybe we should see the data that you're looking at. That's not being shared. You know, if, if we should stay in the homes, maybe we should see the data you're looking at. That's not being shared either. So I, I don't know. There's a lot of unanswered questions. And I, I think that the American people just deserve a to know a little more at this point. Otherwise, you're right. I think we probably will start to see civil unrest here. What's happening in Michigan is probably uh, just the beginning of, of something to happen all, all over the, the country. Walden, from, uh, from your point of view, what... What are other entrepreneurs who who are working in in a larger capital state? You know, they they do have a lot of employees. They do have a lot of people who are writing out. You know, are are first of all, are are the clients that you work with, are, are the friends that you run with, the other entrepreneurs, are they facing some of these same challenges? Or I, I took an informal poll on Facebook, and based solely on that poll, you would think that nothing happened. Right. So <laughs> the majority of the answers were business as usual, minor inconveniences. 
And then the other side of that, again, going back to the mixed messages was, but we need to stay home or we're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, uh, we, we have clients big and small all over the globe. So the majority of them, the majority, like I'm saying, like probably 75% or more have laid off the majority of their employees. Okay. So uh, I'm talking, it doesn't matter if they're online businesses, retailers, uh, service-based industries, whatever they are, they, they're laying off people and furloughing them and just trying to play the game, right? So even one of our really good friends, they only live three minutes from us. They own a gym, right? But like they, they've had to furlough all their employees. They're shifting their whole business model digital. They, they're moved to nutrition and stuff via Zoom, like all these things that they're doing digitally. But like all businesses, big and small, are figuring out how to pivot. And if they're not, then they're hiring consultants and hiring people to come in and tell them how to pivot and how to move and how to change and how to start to evolve into this new normal, right? Which is coincidental of the, the podcast name, but like, we're, we're not going to come out of this the same, like things are going to change. Like, that's just the way it's going to be. And I think that's what we're really trying to like get our grasp on right now, because like you come out of this right now, you come out of this COVID massacre, you're coming out of this oil massacre, like the federal currency going to gold instead of oil, you're coming out of like all these things that are going to start to change, right? Like the the six months to the year after all this pandemic stuff is over, after all these releases from home quarantine is over, that is going to be the roughest one year of American time and history, Right. Some people are going to do really well because as I've mentioned before in my podcast and other people's podcasts, like recessions and overall doom and gloom times create more millionaires and billionaires than any other time in all of history. So if you go back to the great recession, you go back to 2008, 2015, like some of these, even back in the eighties and nineties, when we had the gas wars and all these things, these huge monumental things that happened. That is when the most millionaires and billionaires are created around the globe. So like we're going to see a huge shift in wealth and a huge shift of transfer over the next year, but it's going to be for a very small, minute portion of people that are actually out there taking risk, pivoting, making things happen. Because the majority of people are just trying to keep food on their table. You know, they're like, they, they're so focused on what to do day to day, not six months to a year from now. So the people that are out there creating things that are going to become custom and actually become part of society here in a year to two years from now, they're going to be the millionaires and billionaires, right? Which is going to be really fun to watch. So you have a, a program that's about to launch that I'd love to talk a little bit about, Quentin, um, if you have any questions about this. I think this would be a great time as an entrepreneur yourself to, to really understand kind of the the program that's about to come out from from Venture Studios. And, and you, you alluded to the fact that a lot of people are in a fight, flight, or freeze mentality, and they're stuck in the freeze. Like, they, they let go of everybody, but they don't know if they're going to hire them back. They, yeah. <laughs> they want to open up, but they don't know when they're going to open up, right? So They want to fight, but they don't know. <laughs> exactly, right? They're about to take a swing, but they're scared. Yeah. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what you have coming up that is hopefully going to get some folks to shift their mindset, come together as entrepreneurs, and help each other out. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. So we, uh, we're launching a program, and 
So before we focused a lot on masterminding and we focused a lot on consulting, like two separate standalone industries, right? Like most people, they'll be part of a $100,000 mastermind or a $5,000 mastermind, but they, they won't invest in a consulting or some people will invest in consulting where they're paying them 10, 20, $50,000 a month to consult on their business, but they're not going to be a part of a mastermind where they can network and grow through a group. Right. So like through venture studio, we're like, well, right now is the perfect time to bring it, bring both of them together. Like right now is a perfect time for community, but it's also a perfect time for one-on-one consulting and like the direction of saying, Hey, we're not here to coach you. We're here to tell you if you want to survive COVID and if you want to go out of here and make multiple seven figures coming out of COVID, let's talk. Right. So like we're putting this, this program together, that's basically a 90 day program. It'll launch mid May. And basically it, it's a program around 90 days of hot seat mastermind where you get to like network with entrepreneurs and business owners around the globe, both startups all the way up to fortune 100 and 500 companies. And basically during that program, we're going to give hot seats to 12 people so that everybody gets a hot seat once a month, right? So you can come here, you can bring your problems in over 30 to 45 minutes in front of the whole group. You'll have a team of consultants from Venture Studio step in and basically troubleshoot your business and give you a plan coming out of that hot seat to go implement. But you're also gonna get strategy sessions. You're gonna get one-on-one sessions every single week. You get different two-hour trainings from different experts on lead generation and marketing and operations and just different levels of business. You'll get one-on-ones from. So basically we're, we're trying to take that mastermind networking feel but provide all this one-on-one consulting and education on how to come out of COVID and come out of this crisis and this pandemic with a stronger business that you went into it with, and also with a plan on how to go generate a five to 10 X return over the next couple of years. So I think that's an awesome program because the, the biggest push that came out of the the marketing if you will for covid and staying at home and slow the spread was we're in this you might feel alone but we're in this together right you're alone but we're together and and i think now is the best time that people who who might feel that they're the unicorn need to actually take that step back and say i need some extra help i need some extra eyes on it um, what what have you seen in the past when you've hosted these mastermind groups? What have you seen as as results come out of it? Can you give us an example of one of your clients that attended a mastermind and some of the results that came out of that? We had a so previously coming into COVID, we actually had a um, like an unchained entrepreneurship event. It was a free mastermind that we held all over the the U.S. for the first part of 2020 before all this stuff happened. <laughs> so we we actually put just just short of a hundred people like in a room and we actually troubleshot them, put them in hot seats, like basically gave them a strategy on how to go three, five, 10 X their business. Right. So we've had clients come out of those events and this is just the mastermind side where they're in the hot seat and they actually get to talk with consultants and get results just from being in those hot seats. But we've had people come out of those events and go on and get a 14 ROAS where they're making, they're literally making, is their return on advertised spend. So for every dollar they put into advertising, they're getting $14 in revenue, right? So like they're, they're killing it right now on that side. We have, we have companies that have came through us 
that are now franchising their businesses that go from one location to four, you know, like this is in the last 90 days. So like we've, we've had a crazy amount of results that have came out of this uh, unchained entrepreneur, which was a free mastermind of it, you know? So like I, it, it varies from people that have brick and mortar in-person businesses all the way up to people that are online and like selling products online and going through sales funnels. But like all results like different and they all vary, but like some of these entrepreneurs are seeing extreme results. So, so it is possible during a pandemic to have some success or even a lot of success. Yeah. I had a, I had a recently just during the pandemic, I had a client go from 60 grand a month all the way up to 300 grand a month within 90 days. So like they five X their revenue in 90 days. I had another client like that, that I was just talking about the 14 ROAS, like they, they literally launched their offering during the pandemic in March. And like, they literally have blown up online because people are in front of their phones and TV all the time. Right. So like their ads and their offers going through the roof and they're literally printing money at this point. So the skeptic in me wants to say, well, that's good for them. They probably had a product or a, a particular need that, you know, they're, they're the, they're the PPE masters right now, right? They're the ones who are producing all the PPE, right? That's, that's how they did it. Can you talk yeah. to me a little bit about, you know, <laughs> finding, finding the need right now, finding the, the pivot point for your business, right? So like a cleaning company, what should they be marketing uh, their business as right, so they're using the latest products that are sanitary and sanitizing green products. Um, something that's that's obviously going to be a huge selling point as businesses and offices are are getting back into it. You know, how how can these businesses start pivoting now to look for look forward to opening up when when COVID's done, right? And Air I, I think I think you really need uh, to look at the future and when when you think of cleaning companies, you know, like what, what are the regulations and policies going to look like to clean a business after all this is said and done, mm. right? Or what, what is it going to look like to clean an airplane after this is said and done, right? Like things are going to look, yeah, like a cruise ship, like things are going to look so different after this is all said and done that it, it's hard to like jump into this market right now and say, I'm going to create something that's going to like take off, right? What you do have right now is a captive audience. So like if you have a skill set, if you have a trade, if you have something that you could train other people to do right now, you have a captive audience, right? So like, why not just launch something and go with it, you know? And as we start to come out of COVID and as we start to evolve, that's when people are going to need to pivot, but you need to have that plan in place now so that when you do, to, when you do decide to come out and actually change your business model, couple of months from now, whatever that looks like, you're ready to go. Like most businesses that are smaller, that only have a couple of employees or they're solopreneurs, like they're sitting back right now. They're, they're trying to wait to see if they're actually going to open compared to actually planning and actually having faith that they are going to open. And this is what it's going to look like. Right. So like the gym that we just referenced just a second ago that we consulted with, they, they know they're going to open. They know they're going to open and they're not going to have the same amount of employees that they did when they went into COVID, right? But they know now that they have all these services and offerings that they're going to be able to offer that they never had. But they're planning for, well, here in Chicago, May 30th, because that's what Pritzker just came out and said. So they're planning for May 30th to launch, right? But they're, they're building up so that people on June 1st 
they won't even recognize the stinking business that they came through, right? Because they now have memberships and digital offerings and nutrition and rehab and all these things that they can do all over the globe via a camera that most gyms will never have, right? So like we're, we're seeing these people start to transition, but it's getting in that action mindset instead of reactive mindset. It's getting in the action mindset that says, I'm going to start like taking these steps and making these changes now, you know, so that when this happens and when I can actually go back and hit the gas pedal, my competition is going to be left in the dust or they're not even going to open again because I'm ahead of the game. Right. So what it sounds like is a hard reset that's inevitable. There's a hard reset economically uh, in a lot of people's personal lives. There's a hard reset. They're they're reevaluating their their finances and their everyday spending and their their budgeting. And and I would hope, and we've talked about this in previous episodes. I would hope that people who are sitting at home in front of Facebook, in front of you know YouTube, and and all of these different um, avenues, is that um, they have the opportunity to educate themselves. We are supported by Aerial Digital. Aerial Digital is a full-service digital marketing agency that specializes in custom-designed websites for small to medium-sized businesses. Whether you need a simple one-page bootstrap website or you're ready to start selling your products online with an e-commerce website, Aerial Digital is equipped to help your business. Go to aerialdigitalmarketing.com slash newnormal. That's A-R-I-E-L digitalmarketing.com slash new normal and save 20% on your custom website today. Getting into the fact that people are sitting in front of their computers a lot, they they have all of this technology in front of them. Some of the stories that are now coming out with respect to Facebook starting to actually clamp down on these protests and clamp down on um, fake news and, and misinformation about COVID. I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on, and, and Quentin, I know you had some ideas on the public utility that is Facebook and, and where, where do we go from here with respect to sharing information and sharing ideas and even sharing our first amendment right to, to assemble and, and get together where Facebook is now coming out in, in a couple of articles that we'll link in the show notes. There's, they're, they're talking about literally shutting down any event on the Facebook platform that even mentions breaking quarantine and do they have that right? And should we be looking for alternatives? No, they don't have a right. And no, you shouldn't have to look for an alternative. First off, the alternatives have been tried. You have like in the gun industry, you have the full 30, you have uh, other platforms like Gab and Twitch and, you know, whatever, uh, Telegraph or, or Telegram, or I, I don't, I don't even know all of them, you know, just these weird little platforms that nobody really uses. And they get crushed by the competition. They get kind of put in an echo chamber by sister companies. I shouldn't say sister company, but companies that have similar interests like Google you know, where they have limited um, audience, they have limited reach as far as advertising and availability, they, they can kind of just black hole them. You shouldn't have to look for an alternative anyway, because companies like Facebook, they get public utility tax credits, right? So what does that mean? Well, that means that basically, they are recognized as a public square or a free speech platform, whatever, a, a public utility that we all use. Here's why that's a problem. It's a problem because they censor and silence you all the time. When's the last time you've been censored on a phone call because you said something that was inappropriate? And the answer is never because there was laws passed against that. 
And because the people built the lines, we did the thing with the internet, everybody's saying, so, well, you know, they basically built that infrastructure, kind of. DARPAnet was the start of the internet. Our tax money is taken year over year to basically keep that infrastructure and in maintenance and to provide a stable platform. So we do pay for that. They get to use it and they get to censor us. Well, it's a serious problem because, you know, it doesn't matter if the government's censoring you or a private company censoring you, it's still a violation of your First Amendment right, technically, and, and, and not even technically, in, in actuality. How they get away with it is the government gets to say, oh, well, the free markets or whatever. Well, that's a convenient cop-out. And basically, it, the government is getting a free pass. They are actually getting to censor you because these tech companies hold the party line, right, which is this kind of like globalist narrative. They, they often parrot government talking points. So the government is, in a sense, getting uh, to censor you because they won't do anything about it. It's a problem because we have antitrust laws for this very reason, and we could trust us, right? The government could go in there and break up Google. They could break up Facebook. They could break up Amazon. They refuse to do it. Why? Well, because, they're, again, they're benefiting from it. You're being censored from things that saying things that they don't like, and they get a pass. Oh, we didn't do that. That was Facebook, and we're not going to interfere with the free markets. The thing is, is these tech companies have created monopolies. It's not a free market anymore. It's a natural monopoly. And so what you have in a sense is saying that um, the free market has facilitated this monopolistic market. And now that's a good thing that monopolies are crushing competition and silencing dissidents. So uh, I thought it was all about, uh, you know, uh, the ability to advance in society, right? The free market, the whole idea is to create competition and advancement. In the sense that when the government's doing nothing about these monopolies, it's saying, actually, the free market is facilitate monopolies and just crush competition. That's a really strange thing. And we shouldn't have to go find an alternative. If this, they're getting public utility tax credits, then it should be treated just like a phone call. Oh, I think... Um... Like if you start to look at Facebook, and I know that this is a controversy and all this stuff, but like with Zuckerberg and Facebook in general, like it's a business, it's a for-profit business, right? And he owns controlling shares of everything. And based on his business, he can control what happens on his website. Like, and whether we like it or not, that's what's gonna happen. Just like Google can control what happens in their search engine, right? Like it's not up to us. It's not up to the public. It's, it's a for-profit company. They can run it however they want. They can control and show whatever they want on Facebook. They can control and show whatever they want on Google. It's up to the United States citizens and the people actually using the platforms, the users of the platform to dictate what actually happens there, you know, and if they choose to use those platforms, if Google and Facebook had no users, and every, every user went to somebody else to, let, let's say I start a website that says socialuncensorship.com, like whatever it is, whatever, like whatever that uncensorship is. And all the users from Facebook come to my website. Now I have the billion dollars in ad spend. Now I have the billion dollars in control, right? And I can control what it says. So if, I, if I'm against abortion and I'm for guns and all of these things, and I want to put that on my platform and I want to control what actually is said about Democrats and basically uh, community health and all these things that a far leftist would see as like popular. And I want to say, nope, don't want that. I want to only have 
people that have ARs and supporting babies on my side over here on this platform, like it's my website, I could do whatever I want, right? Zuckerberg and Facebook and overall the ABC company and Google, they can do the same thing with their platforms and there's nothing that we could technically do about it. We can fight about it all day long, but it's their websites, they can control it. Technically though, that's not necessarily true. If they get public utility tax credits, they're technically a public utility. And, and, and the same is true about, let's say, MCI, AT&T back in the day. So, so the if government they, get, would, if would they use violate those... those programs, then they pay them back and they're free, free and clear, right? They're just like Amazon making $15 billion a year or whatever they are and paying $0 in tax, right? They're taking advantage well, of every single tax credit that they can. But not they not necessarily. If they can't like me, if they can't make it true, though, they'll pay it back and they'll be done with it. Right? Well, not necessarily. So the way the FCC would regulate Facebook would be the same as a phone company. The phone companies cannot shut off your phone call. They cannot censor you. It's totally against the law. It would be beyond a civil claim if they did that. It would go into a civil rights violation. They would actually be somebody. Somebody would be in prison for that. And so. Yeah. That was at one time we had party lines. I'm sure you know about party lines living in Wyoming. South, you know, I, I, I grew up in Texas and there was party lines, right? So you, in a sense, in neighborhoods, had a public square in the form of a phone because anybody could pick up a phone and you could talk to 20 different people at once, however many people were on your party line, right? So it was, it was recognized as such back in the day. And, and Congress basically, we petitioned Congress because it wasn't just these private companies that were censoring people unplugging their lines when they said something unpopular because remember edison and the bell company they had an agenda too and they were they were starting to manipulate these technologies for their own advantage but then the government got involved and started to do the same thing but the the first amendment is you know uh a restriction on government right congress shall pass no law the, the thing is is that restriction still does and it was recognized by congress that it does apply to private enterprise the ninth amendment basically says that you can't use your rights to disparage or remove the rights of other people. Either. Right. And so, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not contesting any of this. What I'm contesting is Google and Facebook's ability to control their own algorithm and actually show you what you want to see, right. which they have complete control over because it's sure. their algorithm. So like if you jump on Google and type in the best United States president and they have the right in their algorithm to show only democratic presidents, right. Or Facebook, if you type in and say, I want to show show me all the groups that have a pro gun agenda and they, they don't show anything like that's their own algorithms. Right. Right. Cause it's their own website. Just because you post something on Facebook doesn't mean they have to show it. Sure. But that's why we have the FCC. If they're going to be treated as a communications public utility, the FCC basically did at one time. And there was the one time we had the fairness doctrine, which I don't want to go into that and I have my own opinions, whether that's positive or negative. That was, that was probably the wrong thing to do, but something similar to a fairness doctrine on these tech monopolies as they're developing is probably something we should look at because we are actually running into the same problems that we've had in the past, like, you know, uh, RKO, we had huge telecommunications company and media companies that had a massive control over what people heard and what people were exposed to because, you know, we think, Oh, people have had, you know, this is the most information people have ever had access to. That's true. But they said the same thing when radio came out. They said the same thing when the telephone was invented, because that was true then as well. And these companies did control a narrative and they had an agenda. And we basically regulated how it was they could influence us with their agenda. 
Yeah, and, because I mean, because you it, could basically silence the competition or silence right. groups with and your power. It it would literally turn it, it would literally turn in social media platforms and literally search engines into broadcast stations. It would be comparing them to a radio station. That's the only way the FEC, FCC could ever pass the same jurisdiction as they did when all the stuff with radio and Bell and all that stuff happened. If they don't pass that with F- or with like broadcast station quality, like like conveyance between the material and the data, then it'll never happen because it, yeah. it's a it's a monster of its own. And like they're they're not <laughs> like the U.S. government, like FCC, all these things like that are out there trying to oppose these things against Facebook and Zuckerberg and their own currency and all this stuff is that they're fighting a business that's already doing their own thing, right? So like it's not the norm it's not going to happen and like as much as i want it to and as much as i want to regulate free speech and all this shit and like my, my right to arms and all these things like facebook has the right to do whatever they want because they control their own algorithm like i i'm a facebook user even though i don't want to be right i'm a yeah. google user because <laughs> i don't want to be but like google makes it too freaking easy to do everything my emails my drives my everything like that right so if they want to control their search engine I don't freaking care. (laughs) But like at the end of the day, like until they, until the FCC actually turns them into broadcast stations of pushing a social media agenda and actually pushing that out, it's never going to happen. We can sit here and talk about this all night, but it's, it it means nothing. No. And I I agree with that. I mean, I don't, I don't see how it can happen because there's not enough. We have, we're taking the, the wrong approach to it. You know, it's like, uh, Go start your own Facebook. Go start your own YouTube. In in reality, I guess what I'm saying is there should probably be some outrage. Like it's one of the things Donald Trump campaigned on was is this tech monopolies, right? Um, and you can say whatever you want about that guy, but a lot, it was a pretty popular message. I mean, Bernie Sanders campaigned on the same thing. Um, so there there should be some sort of outrage that that you are being silenced on an infrastructure. I, I get it. That is their software infrastructure, and there is there is a mountain of employees behind that and tech support that keep it running. But at the same time, they're using the lines and the broadcast capabilities that you provided them to do that. They wouldn't have that ability without you, without the government basically robbing you to provide an infrastructure to you know give to large corporations to silence. And and that and, and that is a problem, and it's a vicious cycle. And at some point in time, it's going to either end with us being put in these little intellectual ghettos and these bubbles and being very afraid of saying what it actually is that's on our mind or us taking back control of the systems we provided them in the first place. I guess that was all I was really saying. Well, like that, that just comes back to the internet, right? Because like, (laughs) like, I feel like this is a huge rabbit hole and we're not on with Joe Rogan right now. We're on with us three. So we should probably shelve that one but at the same time you you do have you do have things like operation mockingbird that have the cia taking over or or at least embedding their own operatives within uh media within newspapers at a time where information was so scarce and we rely on facebook we rely on these different outlets and mediums to disseminate some of the information that we get and when you start to get into the conversation of well we don't want you to see certain information that may or may not be helpful to your own cause 
it, it gets into this very weird slippery slope of of you know draconian measures of um, again like the, the the tech monopoly thing's huge right and like so going back to meetings i had even back in 2010 and even before then like i said that it was a race to a trillion dollars and i said that it's a race to become a bank right so you have Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple all racing to be a trillion dollar company and all racing to basically create their own bank where they are in charge of their own financing and they're in charge of doing all this stuff with the consumer data and all these things. That is a scary part of basically a tech monopoly, right? Where one entity has every access point to every point of data, right? And that's a scary point. And like those four names right there, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple, like if they band together, they have more data on people than the U.S. government. Like it's oh, yeah. it's like it's not even. They have fingerprints. They have facial idea. They have like voice. They have video. They have every single thing that we want to make into public social terms. And they have our search records and our payment histories and our Google and Apple Pay and all these things, right? So like those four companies, if they turn into banks, they would replace the U.S. currency in banks. Like they would dominate all that stuff. Let's say that Apple now has the ability to give you a car loan for a Tesla. Let's say that now Amazon can give you a mortgage for your house and supply you with the workers, which they've already tested out through service industry, to come in and fix that house. Let's say that Google now has the ability to write you a small business loan so that you can create your next start, like tech startup, right? Or Facebook has the ability to now create a video platform. Which they're doing with incubators. Right. So like all these, the main term behind Venture Studio is using self-made money to create startups within an organization, right? Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple all have a Venture Studio within their organizations, right? Like, so I'm just sitting back here going, pay me a million dollars for my domain name. Pay me a million dollars. No, just kidding. <laughs> like, but, but like, that's, that's the point of view where we're at right now is if you want to go tech monopoly, that's, that's really the scary part of everything. So uh, Another really scary part is the fact that these are private entities. They have so much data and information on us. They also control so much of what we see and what we think. There's nothing stopping because we have a completely free and open society. There's nothing stopping China, an adversarial nation, to come in and basically obtain these records and to actually start to change the narrative and influence people. People would have no idea. Right. They wouldn't look have at, any idea. TikTok, and, and there's no right? regulations to stop it. You know, oh, the government is basically incapable of, of protecting you and protecting your data. Uh, they, they just... Yeah, TikTok. I agree. TikTok is a good TikTok's example. TikTok's the huge one right now. And literally government agencies are coming out and telling their employees to not have TikTok on their phones, right? Let alone U.S. citizens. But actually TikTok is built by a software out of Japan, right? So it makes you start to wonder about what's going on in Japan right now because that Japanese company that started TikTok and a couple other video platforms went from being worth nothing worth like 65 billion dollars in less than two years they're rivaling freaking tesla and uber and all these companies as the fastest growing startup in history right so like japan actually has a lot of stuff to make you go oh what the heck's going on over there but like the chinese are u utilizing the japanese technology to overcome that so 
I think yeah. that's what actually gets us back into the conversation of fourth generation warfare is where we have all of this background information war, this background financial war. We're, we're never going to see a shot fired potentially in, in the next you know two to three years uh, unless things really start to ramp up. I, a, a lot of the a lot of the things that are happening behind the scenes, the the everyday paycheck to paycheck individual just has no no rhyme or reason to look into it. They don't care. You know, they have the they have the luxury and and Walden, you alluded to this, right? I can get on my my Apple phone and use Apple Pay to go through an Amazon owned grocery store and never once take out my wallet and I can just leave. Right. And so that's this that's the new normal that they're trying and to get us. No into. people, right? No and no people. people, right. So like so then I brought it up earlier about Yum brands and the Chinese owning Yum brands, right? So like Yum Brands has been one of the pioneers of 3D printing food, right? So Yum Brands and McDonald's are on the race to see who can basically automate the whole fast food process where basically an order comes in through a telecom. It goes to a printing machine where it prints your order of food and then a kiosk delivers it. So a people-free delivery system of food, right? So Yum Brands and McDonald's are on that pioneer race. So it's like America versus China. Who's going to come up with it first, right? So like even McDonald's has their headquarters here in Chicago and I've got to tour it before and like see like how all this stuff is coming. But like it's like it's crazy weird to see like a hamburger getting 3D printed, <laughs> right? But like it's the true fact of like, okay, now, okay, out of the big four, who buys Yum Brands or McDonald's with that first printing, right? Mm-hmm. So whoever comes with it, with it first, with that whole process, McDonald's, Yum Brands, whoever it is, will Apple buy them? Amazon? Well, who, who, who's going to buy them, right? Like somebody's going to buy that food manufacturer because like now they've become virtually integrated into that payment processing system call the bank <laughs> right like it's it it start to it's starting to like look more simple the the more you look at it you know like you have carvana out there no people linked to a system where people can buy a car and have it delivered to them in the same day no people except for the delivery service which is now being replaced by uber delivery right like so like you have all this stuff going digitized it's just it's crazy to start to look at when when you go the route of everything's being digitized, everything's going into this new this new business model, where do you see the mom and pops of of America going? Right. So the the business owner who's who's been doing this for thirty plus years, who who just can't keep up. Like what what is what is the incentive for them to be a part of this system? The U.S. and the, like most people in the U.S. And I hate to say it, they're going to become component manufacturers, right? So like the component manufacturers are the people making the screws and rivet for Tesla's cars, right? They're going to be making the components for these processes. At the end of the day, that's that's where where it's going to end up at. We've always been component manufacturers. I mean, if you think about it, the history of the country after the Industrial Revolution was making widgets for the whole world, especially after... Bretton Woods and the Marshall Plan kind of consolidated and Europe and Asia had no manufacturing base. We provided every component in the world, more or less. Uh, us in Australia, basically, 
That's right, why GM but, plants got set up down there. So what, this what, what happened in the last 40 years though? Yeah, no, we outsourced all of that. And then we, right. we don't know how to do it. Anymore, and then we outsourced right? that. <laughs> right. So. so like we outsourced our outsourcing and that yeah. doesn't work. So like no. what, what's going to happen now is you're going to start to see a shift of both the import and exporting stuff is going to take a while sure. to get back on track. So if people in the U.S. want to keep manufacturing the products here, whether it's car manufacturers to ventilators to hospital stuff to food, we have to start manufacturing back here, right? But to manufacture back here, there's a dozen different components that go into manufacturing something in the States. The mom and pop shops and even startups that start to go into these component or these widget making like facilities are the ones that are going to boom, right? Like the people that come back here and say, man, you know what? I found one little similarity between a Boeing airplane and a Tesla car, like, and I'm going to manufacture the crap out of that thing. Right. They're going to go on and make millions of dollars. Right. Or the person that's sitting there going, man, like I found a way to 3D print this component, you know, and now I'm going to go talk to this car manufacturer, this dump truck hauler, this whatever over here, and we're going to manufacture this axle part, right? So like we're becoming component manufacturers again. History is repeating itself right now because we're going to have to start becoming those component manufacturers again. Yeah. And there's been a lot of talk of of bringing manufacturing back, and and Japan is incentivizing companies to come to them instead of China, as as we start to see those component manufacturing and the industrial re revel or the, the the second industrial revolution happen in America, you know, is that does that become the the light at the end of the tunnel in the next three years? Are we going to start to see that pivot? Are are we encouraging that pivot where people are coming back? Manufacturing is coming back. We're, we're teaching our children, right? Some of the memes that you've seen on Facebook is, hey, kids, pay attention to all the essential jobs right now, right? They're the ones who are still working. So, are, you know, do we start to see that shift into the manufacturing more trade skills or is that a resurgence? Is, are, are we getting into a renaissance, right? So the renaissance was born out of the plague. Are we coming into the new American renaissance because of COVID-19? Probably. I mean, because if you think about it, China's whole economy to, to prevent uh, kind of a... Uh, a breakup or infighting or factionalism within China. It's, it's having 200,000 people in one plant and each person turns like one screw. And, and, and that sounds ridiculous, but they literally do that. And the government uses MMT to basically keep people uh, in these jobs and, and make sure their welfare is, is, is taken care of. But, you know, we don't have to do that. We, we have far less people we have factionalism, obviously, but generally Americans, you know, want to work. It doesn't matter if you're left or right, right? You want to have a job and you want to have uh, the American dream. So we have uh, less of a problem, which is, is the population, you know, basically than China does. And we could see, you know, machine learning, the Internet of Things and automated manufacturing boom here. And you would actually reduce the overhead of most manufacturing processes across the board and increase profit margins, we're getting to the point where the Chinese labor actually doesn't provide enough margin and profit to justify the transportation costs. And so how we could get around that as a country and how we could really come ahead out of this pandemic is just simply rethinking manufacturing as a whole. And, and a lot of our tech companies have already started that process. you know. And, and so that's what you're going to see come forth. The, the revolution or the renaissance 
out of this in the American economy is going to be a lean manufacturing process like the world has never seen. Completely agree. Yep, 100%. So, I, I mean, I, I have a firm belief that, like, coming out of this, we'll never be operating as lean as we were, right? Like, this, this moving forward right now, like, this is the change that's going to happen. And coming back to the U.S., like, yes, some some ego and some pride has to get set away, right? So, like, that's that's the heart shift that I'm looking for in the United States right now is, like, the ego of somebody making X amount of dollars per hour to do this, like that's not going to come back. You might as well shift, right? Like I'm looking for that shift. I'm looking for the pride shift of saying, Oh, I'm going from this to this. Like it's not a big deal type of thing. At least I have a job, right? I'm looking for that mindset shift because when that starts to happen, like the U S is going to get on fire, man, we're going to get on fire. Like we haven't seen since world war two, right? Like we're going to come out of this with, more people having better jobs here in the U.S., but having a balance because they're coming out of a COVID situation where they just spent 24-7 with their families, and now they're used to spending time with their families, right? So, like, we're going to start to see a time work balance come out of this because that's what people are expecting. Because coming out of this, like, yeah, I might have worked 30 hours last week, but my wife was like, where were you, like, type of situation, right? <laughs> <laughs> like she wanted me home more, you know, she wanted me with the kids more. Like we have three kids right now and like she wanted me home with them. Right. So like she's been experiencing me have more time with them more often now, you know, and like I'm not, I'm not unique in that realm, in that realm. Like everybody's being pulled in the, the household more often. And that's a good thing. Like we're going to start to see more balance with life in the household but actually people, when they start to alleviate and get rid of that ego and get rid of that pride, like we're going to start to see that shift back because like we were just sitting on earlier, like automation, Uber truck drivers going from truck drivers to basically taxi drivers and then nothing, right? So what, what are we going to do with the, the third of the population that's a truck driver between 18 and 55 male? Like they're going to go into manufacturing like manufacturing is going to get more lean it's going to get more automated like it's just going to happen so I mean, and it's going to be a volume manufacturing economy the, the entire model around manufacturing because we will start to produce things for the world again because you know we have strict environmental regulations here right but not as strict as france or germany we can still manufacture much more effectively because we're not completely strangled and to be honest with you, the new processes that are going to come out, they're going to be much more uh, environmentally friendly anyway. So we could really maximize that and just crank out loads of volume and really start to, to uh, model people's pay plans around the volume that we produce in the world. Again, like we did at one time, you know, it, it, people like to say Henry Ford created the middle class. That's actually true. And it's because of the volume the Ford plants put out for the world, you know, so I, I think we could see something like that again. So you, you brought up a great point that, you know, the new normal that's going to hopefully come out of this is a work-life balance that hasn't been seen before, right? So the last three years for me personally has has been about the hustle, the hustle, the hustle, the hustle. And, and you've got the Gary V message out there that's, you know, 24-7 working, eat crap for two years and you'll eat caviar for the rest of your life, right? So I think people are now going to be, we talked about the hard reset, they're going to reset their priorities 
and they're saying, you know what, I can still work hard, but still have a good life with my family and not, not, not neglect them, not leave them behind. Uh, a lot more people are going to be spending more time at home. We, we see an entire population, for the most part, uh, for the better part of the, the population, that are working from home for the very first time. And they're just now figuring out, like every suggested video for whatever reason for me on YouTube is how to cut your own hair and how to set up your home office. And I've been doing this for the last four years, right? So that, that trend is obviously shifting into helping people and there's a great opportunity for people who have been doing it for such a long time to, to provide that information, to create that content, to get people ready for the America 2.0 or 3.0, where whatever version we're in uh, of the matrix. Um, Walden, if you could leave our listeners with one message, if you can leave them with a gratitude, but also leave them with one takeaway that they can start to work on that they can get ready for, whether they're an entrepreneur, whether they're someone who's working on a side hustle and looking to become a solopreneur, or even if they're working at a company who is still keeping them on for right now, or if they've been laid off, pretty much anybody right now, what would be the message that you would give to them in this state of COVID-19, pandemic America? What is the message that you would give them to get them ready and prepared to come out of it? when the lockdowns are over, when we get to go back to our offices, when we get to go back out to eat, what is the message that you want them to take away from tonight? I want people to start to realize and look at the freedom they have in entrepreneurship, um, the ability to create your own hours, to have that lifestyle with your family, to basically create your own destiny and basically live a completely freedom style life right so but to do that you have to have faith that what you're getting ready to go do is gonna work and no matter how bad a day is or how good a day is you have faith that no matter what it's gonna happen right so like having faith like on the worst days that are just crushing you and bringing you down like I've had days where I've got slapped with lawsuits and had employees quit and do all these things all in the same day and I still have faith that no matter what happens I'm going to be better off right and no matter what happens I have faith that I'm doing the right thing and I'm going on to do a better thing right so like whatever you're doing right now side hustle wise and all these points set aside right so learn a new skill set pick up a book go do something, go make your life better right now, right? If you have kids, there's never more of an intensive time than right now with your kids. Like you may never get this time back than to spend it with their, with your kids, whether they're zero or 18 and moving out, like you're never going to get this time back, right? So if you have kids, I value, value that time, but also look into that future of those kids that are going to go on to have grandkids and great grandkids for you and realize if I keep working my same life, if I keep doing this, if I keep doing that, what is my great, 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 great grandkids going to remember me for? Or will they even remember me? Right. I, I want to set up my kids to know that like for the foreseeable future through millions and millions of dollars and hundreds of companies or whatever, I decided to keep passing on to them and them and them and 
their generations and their generations and their generations. Like I'm going to be known as somebody that set the roots of our family. Right. And through entrepreneurship, you have the ability to set those roots. Like if you're just out there right now, pounding the pavement, doing your things, like keep doing that because I'm, I'm not saying like walk away and go start a business. I'm saying take the steps to know that when the time comes to start a business or go out and invest or do what you do while using the cash from your cash flow. Like I, I've talked to multiple business owners, even in the last month that they're getting the COVID checks or getting their stimulus checks or getting X, Y, G, X, Y, Z checks. Like I've taken and helped people with a $3,000 tax return generate a multi-million dollar business, right? Like you can use a couple hundred bucks here, a couple thousand bucks here to go on and generate millions of dollars for yourself and your future generations. Like take the time now, learn, develop, and build a skill set, or start in the mindset of like, okay, when this comes out of this, looking into the future, what is going to be the necessity? What is going to be an essential service? What is going to be essential AF, as most t-shirts are saying nowadays? Like, where can I go with my skill set? What can I go learn to benefit one year from now, two years from now, five years from now? What skill sets can I groom my kids into knowing to benefit from this in the future? Very encouraging. Thank you for that, Walden. Quinn, any closing well thoughts? Said. No, that was awesome. Awesome. Walden, I want to thank you so much for the time that you've taken. I want to Thank you for your knowledge, for your experience, for your edification and bringing so much to the table. Um, we have a very small audience, but that audience will soon grow. And when they come back to episodes one, two, and three, and you were a part of that very beginning, uh, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for being a part of this, for helping us grow, for helping us be better entrepreneurs and better fathers and better husbands with your words. So I just want to bless you and, and thank you for, for everything that you've provided for, for myself personally and also for our audience today. So with that Great conversation, man. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to thank our audience who, who is supporting us, our sponsors who have been supporting us and keeping us going. Um, it may not be much, but we appreciate it and we want to continue to edify and, and grow their businesses as well. So with that, stay safe and welcome to the new normal.